So go ahead and turn to Jonah chapter 4, and we'll be spending uh, this morning in Jonah chapter 4. As I mentioned, if you're new here, if you're visiting, uh, we've been studying this book um, for the month of uh, August, and we hope the reason why is as a church that we're challenged um, by what we've been learning and what we've been seeing. We've been praying to um, see the dividends of this study pay off in the weeks and months and years to come as we strive to be uh, a church that's not just comfortable in our Christian uh, bubbles, but to be faithful in proclaiming the gospel to those who desperately need it. And so think through even ways in which you can put this into practice. Think of people you can invite out to church, whether it's uh, co-workers or people you know living in this area. Think of people you can also invite to retreat. Um, those are very practical, tangible ways in which we can be stretching ourselves to evangelize, putting ourselves out there so that um, we grow in cherishing the gospel and sharing it. So uh, as we conclude our time, I hope that it's been profitable to you. We'll be looking at Jonah chapter 4. I'll read our entire passage for us, and then we'll pray for the Lord's help. Jonah chapter 4, beginning verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Verse 5, Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant? For which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. Let's pray. Father, we ask for your help now to bring to light the riches of Scripture and to show us Christ that we might delight in Him, and be so enamored by the Master and Savior we have that we will be compelled to share the good news, to proclaim and be your ambassadors to the lost, to those who remain in the darkness. Lord, we are people who claim to cherish your grace, and so Lord, help us to be people who extend that grace to those who desperately need it. We ask that your word would be living and active, that it would stir within us new affections, godly appetites, and holy desires, that we would be found to be people who would devote ourselves to the worship of Christ. 
And so use this word as a time in which we are enriched and built up, in which our souls are nourished by your word, that we would be people who proclaim your word. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now, like many of you, I was following the Rio Olympics, which concluded just last Sunday. It might seem like a long time ago. But throughout the Olympics, it was fun to just tune in to the major events, to watch those major events. And my family particularly followed uh, Michael Phelps and Katie Ledecky, or as our daughter likes to call, Katie the Ducky. Um, but anytime these two were racing, we were watching. And so there was much hype, much fanfare, much excitement. And these swimmers, if you watched as well, they rose to the occasion. Michael Phelps added five more gold medals and one silver to his uh, Olympic career. And he finished as the most decorated Olympic athlete with a total of 23 gold medals. The next closest is uh, some person with nine gold medals. So Michael Phelps has more than doubled that amount. Katie Ledecky, on the other hand, um, she's young at the age of 19, uh, younger than most of us here. Uh, she's a teenager, and she went on to dominate her opponents. She just destroyed the field. She won gold in all of her individual events and smashed the world record in the 400-meter and 800-meter freestyle races. Both swimmers were remarkable, easily in the Olympic pantheon of greatness. But despite such unprecedented achievements, they showed great poise and character in their victory. Even Michael Phelps, who was trash-talked by one of his opponents, he was rather gracious even when he defeated him. Now, they were honored to represent their country, the U.S. of A. They were humble in their interviews when approached. And it's only fitting if you realize how fortunate you are, how blessed you are to breathe that rarefied air that comes from being at the very top. Now Jonah, as we've been studying, doesn't handle his success in the same way. Rather, instead of humbling himself, we'll see him huffing and puffing. Instead of celebrating what God does through him, Jonah complains. Last week, an entire city, an entire city turns to God. We're talking about hundreds of thousands of people heeding Jonah's message, believing in God's word, and repenting of their sin. This is remarkable. This has never happened before, unprecedented. There's never been a missions trip or a church event more fruitful. Maybe someday at RBC we'll be able to repeat the feat. But yet God in his kindness spares this entire nation of pagan people, the Ninevites. And this would seem like the most fitting, the most appropriate, the best place to end the book of Jonah. Why not close on a high note with a beaming, bright example of repentance and faith? But much to our surprise, there is more to the story. A whole nother chapter, chapter 4. And the fact that chapter 4 exists, the fact that there is chapter 4 is sheer grace. Jonah pens chapter 4 for a poignant purpose, to show us that he is not the hero of the story. Jonah doesn't include this last episode to esteem his example, but to esteem God's grace. A grace necessary not only in our evangelism efforts, but a grace necessary for weak evangelists. Evangelists like you and me. 
Now we've watched God's grace in his pursuit of a great and enormous city. But this morning, we watch God's grace in how he pursues an individual, a stubborn prophet. And mind you, this is a prophet of God. Typically, prophets of God were commissioned to herald the words of judgment. God sent his prophet as a megaphone to announce and call wayward nations back to repentance. But in this case, Jonah is special. Jonah is unique in his disobedience. And we find that God has to send himself, as it were, to rescue and pursue the prophet of God, to call Jonah back to repentance. And there is much to rescue Jonah from. God is gracious. Jonah is graceless. As we've been examining this month, the God of evangelism, the gospel evangelism, the go of evangelism, and this morning, the grace of evangelism. The grace of evangelism. We'll see this unfold in this chapter. Now, there's no points. There's no outline. Um, I'm sorry. We're just going to walk through this story. So, appear again at verse 1 as, as the, the story unfolds for us. It says, But it displeased, the repentance of entire nation displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Now, literally, these words read, It was evil. It was evil to Jonah, a great evil. The intensity of Jonah's displeasure is amplified by redundancy, by the repetitive use of the word evil. Sadly, the evil that has characterized, that has defined the Ninevite people, now defines Jonah, the prophet of God. And this is made explicit in how he complains to God. Look at verse 2. He prays to the Lord and he says this, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and bounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Now just think about that prayer. Here comes Jonah approaching God as if to say, I told you so. I knew this was going to happen. And this is not a prayer of affection and adoration, but accusation. Jonah is not adoring God, but attacking Him. And he hones in specifically on God's attributes. Look what you did, because this is who you are. You are gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. These attributes that characterize the true and living God of the Bible, of the Old Testament that Jonah was familiar with, this is the God. Jonah despises. Jonah holds the character of God as the reason for his charge against God. And really, Jonah flees from God because he lacks the heart of God. That's what strikes us from this text. That's what's so jarring and incongruous and so offensive. That Jonah's knowledge of God leads to his disobedience. The very truth the very realities that should promote obedience prompts Jonah to disobey. There is a disconnect, you see, between what Jonah knows and how he lives. God is gracious, merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. Jonah, on the other hand, is graceless, merciless, quick to anger, lacking love, relentless for the Ninevites' ruin. Jonah has done what God wanted. He has proclaimed the message. But God has not done 
what Jonah wants, demolishing the Ninevites. God wants deliverance. Jonah wants destruction. And what breaks God's heart the most is how unbroken Jonah's heart is. Church, the reason we're so reluctant to obey is probably because we can sympathize with Jonah. The reason we even hesitate in our evangelism can usually be attributed to two things. Just like Jonah, either we don't really know the heart of God or we don't have the heart of God. Now this passage is not difficult to understand. You can read it and for the most part understand the principle laid out. This passage is difficult, not because it's hard to understand, but because it's so crystal clear. Knowing more about God should make us more like God. It's that simple. Knowing the grace of God should make us gracious to the unbeliever who has the mouth of a sailor. Knowing the patience of God should make us patient when dealing with an obnoxious non-Christian. Knowing the love of God should make us more loving towards our rude family members who don't know Christ. Because the simple fact is those who know the most about the heart of God should be the ones who reflect it. But sadly, don't you find this to be not the case? How backwards can we be when increased knowledge of God is followed with increased disobedience to God? That those closest to God in mind, in theology, in knowledge, can be those furthest in heart, in living it out. This is epitomized in Jonah, when his rage culminates in verse 3. Therefore, because of who you are, God, therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. How deep does Jonah's anger go? This deep. He pleads for death. And the conclusion Jonah draws is outrageous. Death is a better alternative than life. But hear this. It's not simply that Jonah can't bring himself to stand the Ninevites. Jonah can't bring himself to stand God. Death without a gracious God is better than life with a gracious God. And at this point in the story, we're fed up. We're tired of Jonah and his antics, his complaining. We feel ourselves, ourselves siding with God. And we're itching for God just to pull the trigger, right? Just to let Jonah have it. Kill this fool and put this whiny prophet out of his misery and out of ours. End his life. Let him be done with. But beloved, such a response shows that we've fallen into the same trap. Without realizing we harbor the same attitude towards Jonah as Jonah harbors towards the Ninevites. Church, this is where the Word of God slides into our hearts like a dagger. It shows us that we're no different, that we are just as self-righteous people whose knowledge of God fails to shape our attitudes towards the unrighteous. What Jonah fails to understand is that he's no better than the Ninevites. And what a shame if we fail to understand we're no better than Jonah and the Ninevites. God is not just gracious in our evangelism efforts. God is gracious to egotistical evangelists. And just as God will not stop pursuing Jonah, so He won't stop pursuing us. In fact, God's pursuit of Nineveh and their citywide repentance is one means, one strategy to actually get at Jonah and his heart. 
Church, sometimes God will place people in our lives just to get at us. And don't we find that often to be the case? I know I do. God will bring someone into my life that really stretches me to love and give me an opportunity to grow in faith. But oftentimes I squander those moments by complaining, by keeping to myself, by harboring bitterness. And yet in God's infinite wisdom and goodness, the very people we loathe or look down upon have been sovereignly placed to provoke us to introspection. The problem, you see, isn't out there with them, how they wronged you, how they rub you the wrong way. No, the problem is in here with us, our hearts and how small they are. Often, that person who's a thorn in our side is really a microscope for our hearts. The abrasive boss, the nagging parent, the awkward neighbor, they all surface what resides within us, our pride, our impatience, our lack of sympathy and love, compassion for the lost. But God shows us the proper response. In contrast to Jonah's anger is God's grace. God would have been in the right if he struck Jonah dead. God would have been in the right if he disintegrated Jonah at his first step towards Tarshish. But what do we find? Verse 4, And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah, is it right for you to be angry? Now we're all familiar with this approach, you know, when this, this sort of counseling. When a father is asking his son, why did you hit your brother? Of course the father already knows. It's because the little brother ate his cookie. You know, this happened all the time in my household and I'm sure in Pastor Cho's household. So why does the father actually ask a question if he already knows? Well, it's to coerce the son to see his error, to ask for forgiveness and to change his ways. You see, questions, they tug. Questions unravel a stubborn heart to see the truth. God doesn't need to ask anyone anything. He already knows. God doesn't even have to entertain Jonah, but feel the kindness of God's question melting Jonah's stony heart. Jonah, do you do well to be angry? Now, God doesn't address Jonah's request for death. He just pierces him through with a question pertaining to Jonah's anger. And it's as if God is reaching deep within inside Jonah and exposing his inconsistency and then forcing him to acknowledge and confess, Jonah, whatever happened to the heart posture when you first prayed to me? Where's the Jonah of Jonah chapter 2? What happened to your praises of my glorious mercies? What happened to your joyful cry that salvation belongs to the Lord? Where are you, Jonah? Jonah has gone from delighting in God's grace to despising it. Now, you probably heard that Jonah is a racist because of how much he hates the Ninevites. And there is truth to that allegation. Jonah is a racist. But there is something much more profound going on in his heart. Something that if we were to look in the mirror, we may be guilty of as well. Jonah is a racist precisely because he's graceless. And when we elevate ourselves and are condescending towards others, it's usually because we are too. Beloved, we are better at receiving grace than giving it. But church, it's also true that we are better at giving grace when we receive it. 
Our privilege should not make us proud as believers. Those who have been shown grace should be the best at dispensing it, at giving it. God's question to Jonah is obvious. Do you do well to be angry? No, you don't. Because I haven't been angry with you. You see, Jonah doesn't just forget who God is. Jonah forgets who God is to him. When we lose sight of who God is, what He has done for us at the cross, we lose sight of the grace of our evangelism. So God will prick Jonah's heart through an object lesson. Verse 5, Jonah went out of the city, sat to the east of the city, and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. After God questions, Jonah leaves frustrated. He's fuming. He ditches the city and makes his way east of the city. And once there, once Jonah has completed his mission, well, it's time to cut out, to abandon these people. And so he makes his trek eastward until he's satisfied with the amount of distance he's placed between himself and Nineveh. And feeling content, he waits. He builds a makeshift house and Jonah scrounges around, gathers some twigs, some, some scraps, some branches to set up his humble hut. And he's going to patiently see what happens next. And it might seem like a minor detail, but it begs the question, why? Why is he waiting? Well, it exposes to us Jonah's longing desire. He's still wishful. He's still pining that God would relent, not from his anger, but from his grace, from his compassion. Listen, Jonah wants God to repent of his kindness. To the very end, he's clinging on to the prospect, oh, there still might be hope that God would destroy the Ninevites. But God will not leave Jonah waiting. Look at verse 6. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. While Jonah makes his pitiful booth, the Lord God appoints. God arranges for a plant emerged to sprout up from the ground. And in a rather dramatic fashion, Jonah informs us that this plant saves him from his discomfort. If you're using the ESV like I am, you'll notice a small footnote next to the word disaster. If you just glance down at the bottom of the page, the footnote tells us that this word for disaster, surprise, is the same word for evil. And we've already encountered this word evil repeated throughout this story and earlier in this chapter. Now what does this tell us? It shows us that for Jonah, the plant served as a savior from the evil discomfort of the heat. Now does that strike you as odd? Church, does the ridiculousness of Jonah's assessment strike you as peculiar? When the repentance of Nineveh, evil, and the discomfort of weather conditions, evil, when those two are lumped into the same category, there's something terribly wrong with how Jonah perceives the world. Just look instead at what makes Jonah happy. This is the first time in the book where he's content and pleased, and the text tells us plainly, Jonah was exceedingly glad, not at salvation, Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Now, does this sound familiar? It echoes of verse 1. 
And while there's a connection between verse 1 and verse 6, the contrast should be unsettling. Let me make it plain for you. At the repentance of Nineveh, it was evil to Jonah, a great evil. At the appointment of a plant, it was good to Jonah, a great good. From exceedingly angry to exceedingly glad, Jonah's attitude towards people and plants is troubling. Jonah loathes the sea, the storm, the giant fish, the Ninevites, but the plant, the plant he likes, he wants to keep it. God's lesson has only begun. Because watch what happens beginning verse 7. But when dawn came up the next day, God also appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed, there it is again, God sovereignly appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he at last asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. One day, just one day after the plant has provided relief for Jonah, God appoints a worm to strike and attack the plant, this precious plant that Jonah holds dear to his heart. God designates this ferocious little wormy and, and this, this vulnerable plant dries out and withers away. And both these verses begin, of verse 6 and 7, begin in similar fashion with God appointing, but they end with different results. The plant is gone, the sun comes, and God yet again appoints, only this time it isn't something pleasant like a plant or subtle like a small worm. God calls forth a scorching wind to rise from the east and to do his bidding. Now, these winds were no slight breezes. This wasn't like a nice stroll in the park. They were vacuums, sucking out all the moisture in the area, leaving your skin feeling brittle and taut. The grueling combination of the singeing sun and the scorching wind, they assault Jonah. The wrath of God is tangible. It's palpable to Jonah. He feels his own body wilting away and every drop of water inside of him evaporating. His great joy, the plant, has been replaced by a blazing sun that will not cease beating Jonah from head to toe. Jonah has been pushed over the edge and the only thing hotter than Jonah's circumstances is his temper. He steams at God. It is better for me to die than it is to live. Before, Jonah wails for death because of who God is. Now, Jonah also wails for death because of what God has done. And laced in Jonah's declaration is his arrogant charge against God. Jonah assumes he knows better than the creator of the universe. Now, beloved, what is happening here? Jonah takes God's grace for granted. You see, this trying condition is not evidence of God's abandonment. This trying condition was actually evidence of God's presence, of his pursuit of Jonah. I mean, it should have been obvious, apparent to Jonah. How else do you explain a series of miraculous and strange events? The hurling of a storm, the provision of the fish, the turning of a nation, and now the appointment of the plant, the worm, and of the wind and the sun. If God, if God is not the one behind it all. And more than looking at these incidences as unfortunate circumstances, 
Jotham should have been catapulted to God, made conscience that these are lessons that God is trying to teach him. Jonah thought God's blessing in his life meant everything would run smoothly, that his life would be filled with happiness and comfort. But God has better things in store than temporary relief and superficial pleasures. God is after Jonah's heart. Church, God cares more about making you like Christ than making your life cozy and comfortable. And He will orchestrate conditions. He will designate circumstances. He will sovereignly appoint various things in your life to make an appointment with you. Perhaps this is the lesson to learn in evangelism. Now this challenging endeavor we are to embrace is one in which we not only hold forth the gospel to the lost, but in actually evangelizing, we have to hold the good news close to our own chest. God will put you in an uncomfortable situation or that awkward conversation so that you trust Him instead of your abilities to be eloquent or to persuade someone to Christ. God will bring someone stubborn, hostile, so that you grow in prayer as you plead for conversion and for the courage to speak. God will appoint a non-Christian in your life who is so difficult, who is so unlovable, that you're then challenged to demonstrate Christ-like love. You see, evangelism isn't only for the benefit of those who receive the message. It's also for the benefit of those who are sharing it. In all these situations, if we neglect the lesson God is attempting to teach us, we will miss out on the best part. God, God Himself. All of God's sovereign purposes and divine acts have primed Jonah's heart for this confrontation. Look at verse 9. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry now for the plant? And Jonah responds, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. God steers Jonah to consider his heart. God directs Jonah to evaluate his distorted view. Another question to shepherd Jonah. And it's almost the same question as before in verse 4. But now more direct. Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And this time Jonah can't refrain. He can't keep his mouth shut. The pouting prophet erupts. Yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. And my bet, my guess is that Jonah is completely aware of the right answer. Of how wrong he is. But in his rage, he answers irrationally. Because that's what sin does. Jonah can't bring himself to admit his own inconsistency and shortcoming. And the only way to cover them up is to indulge in his anger. And God finally has Jonah where he wants him. Look at how God tightens the screws in verse 10. And the Lord said, well, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. Now, this is not a question any longer. This is reality. This is truth. This is a matter of fact. Jonah pities the shrub, the vine, or whatever it was. Jonah has compassion on a small green thing. And this idea of compassion is to have weeping eyes. Weeping eyes. God pinpoints what causes Jonah's eyes to roll with tears. A plant. A plant. 
And it's emphatic here. You, you Jonah, you pity the plant. How absurd is this? And more than that, God reminds Jonah, he has no right to it. And Jonah has neither labored or made it grow. The last blow God delivers focuses on the fleeting nature of Jonah's object of compassion. You see, the only thing less fickle than the plant is Jonah's grace. How can such a short-lived, inanimate object as this plant captivate Jonah's compassion more than the demise of an entire city with eternal souls? God puts Jonah in his place. Who is sovereign here, Jonah? Who is God? And let me ask, who is really messed up? You're going to find fault with my compassion when yours only extends to a pitiful plant? This is what God turns Jonah's attention to in verse 11. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. God questions Jonah's compassion on two fronts, his lack of pity for people and for cattle. Now this mentioning of animal seems strange to us, but God is appealing in any way possible to reach Jonah's callous heart. And the argument is straightforward. You know, the slaughter of ignorant, innocent animals should be reason enough to elicit some sort of compassionate response from Jonah. God prods Jonah. Jonah, even if you hate the people of Nineveh, what about the little animals? You know, the colleague creatures like the sheep, the cattle. Isn't it tragic that these animals are slaughtered? They have to die on account of the great city just because they are owned by Ninevites. And God continues his plea. If you sympathize with innocent animals, how much more so should you with ignorant people? People who are so blinded from the truth of the gospel, it's as if they don't know the difference between their right hand and their left. They have no moral compass. Is there anything more tragic and terrible, Jonah, than for ignorant sinners to die only to stand before their holy creator guilty? Jonah knows full well that the grave is not the final destination. These are, there are people perishing who are oblivious to their accountability to God and the judgment that awaits. In their ignorance, the Ninevites, they're not prepared to stand guilty before a holy God. For Jonah, this made the Ninevites detestable. For God, this made them pitiful. Church, receiving Christ's righteousness should not make us more self-righteous. Being believers should not make us resent unbelievers. And I think a lot of times we are guilty of this attitude, this heart posture. I think this subtly arises in our hearts, in our reluctance to evangelize and how we choose who we evangelize to. We select. We look down and condemn those who embrace the world, those who cheat on their spouses, those who lie to their bosses, those who round the corners. And really, what did we expect as Christians? These people are sinners. They're sinners in need of saving. And we might never articulate it, but we scoff at them for their detestable ways, and we think them in our hearts. Man, they're, they're unworthy of Jesus. They don't deserve to hear the gospel message. 
Beloved, in that moment, we have forgotten the power of the gospel and the grace of God. Or to take it even a step further, we might chalk up a vocal atheist, a belligerent drunk, a rebellious student, or a hardened parent as people who would never come to Christ. We think they're too steeped in their sin to ever turn to Jesus. But do you realize what you're saying in that moment? God can save me, but he can't save them. But in the words of Paul, the Apostle Paul, such were some of you. You used to be that vocal atheist. You used to be that belligerent drunk, the rebellious student, the hardened soul, until God's grace intervened and broke through. Church, when we choose who we evangelize to, based upon our opinion, our assessment of their sinfulness, of their worthiness, we surely have forgotten the power of the gospel and the grace of God. God is smashing Jonah's heart to make it more like his. And God is breaking our hearts, that our hearts would break for the same things as God's. God's eyes roll with tears for people. And it's just as emphatic here as it is in verse 10. God draws a humbling comparison. You, you Jonah, you pity the plant. I, I pity people. And God's words cut straight to the heart. Jonah, you love plants more than you love people. Your pecking order is upside down. Because Jonah shows more compassion towards a single plant than animals and than people. God's affection, care, compassion, and grace is wrapped up first with people, then animals, then a plant. Now it's tempting to think that we are innocent, that we don't share Jonah's faults, that just because we aren't obsessed with our gardens or aren't committed tree huggers, that we don't struggle with showing grace. But the plant here is representative. It's symbolic of more than greenery. The plant represents our comforts, our hobbies, our desires. Sure, we may not see plants as more valuable than, our, than other people, but we can be just like Jonah, preferring our comforts or prized possessions over people. In addition to self-righteousness, we see that selfishness kills our evangelism. I think this one is more obvious to us. You know, we rather numb ourselves out in front of a television instead of carrying a conversation about Christ with our coworker. We'd rather run through our schedule and our agenda for the day than be interrupted by a knock at the door or a conversation in line. We'd rather invest our resources, our time, our money into our house, into our savings, into our toys, than missions, than the church, than opportunities that will provide us moments in which we can share the gospel. We'd rather be comfortable and cozy in our own little bubbles than be forced out by the inconvenience of proclaiming Christ. Jonah loves the one-day plant more than he does 120,000 people. Jonah weeps for the plant that is here today and gone tomorrow. We weep and love things that are here today and gone tomorrow. But God, God weeps and loves souls that will spend either an eternity in hell or an eternity in heaven. Church, what breaks your heart? Do you believe that people are genuinely perishing? Is your heart bothered, burdened by the things that bother and burden God's heart? 
Are you moved to pity over ignorant, damnable souls, people that walk and live among you more than you are the loss of material possession or comfortable bubbles? I find this utterly devastating and challenging to my own heart because I'll confess, even as a pastor, I'm prone to forget, to be distracted, to be self-righteous and self-absorbed. And so I'm preaching to myself as much as I am preaching to you. Church, I need your help. This is why we study the Word of God together so we can foster and cultivate an environment in which we hold each other accountable, in which we encourage one another, that as we gather, our hearts are set aflame by the gospel message so that when we are scattered throughout the week, we can proclaim people to be reconciled to Christ. God's relentless grace reaches the sailor and the Ninevites. And God's grace is reaching for Jonah. Now, the book of Jonah, as you all know, ends in a very abrupt fashion. The last thing we read is God's question to Jonah, and it jumps out at us. The question, you see, reverberates from Jonah's time to ours, to right now, today, even as we read it. It chases us as we feel inclined to flee from it, much like Jonah, only to sit and compare then God's heart with our very own. God's rebuke to Jonah is meant to drive him towards repentance and joyful obedience. And God's question is meant to drive us towards reflection, repentance, and joyful obedience. That's why it lingers. That's why it's the last note on the page. While how this book concludes is convicting, it's also encouraging. I don't want us to go away from this study or from this Sunday feeling down and depressed because I know that's our temptation. That's easily what we do when we come to evangelism because we always feel like, well, there's more to do or we're not doing enough. But look at it from another angle. And God is not a merciless slave driver. He's not saying evangelize every day, every second, otherwise you're a sucky Christian. No, God is gracious. He wants us to enjoy evangelism. And so he invites us to be used to experience evangelism so that we would also experience the power of his grace when he's kind to show us fruit when people actually respond and heed the gospel message when God uses our meager and broken efforts to actually bring souls to repentance and faith yes God does well to be angry but God also does well to be gracious and this is the gospel message that though we were created in God's image to be in good relation with Him, we have all turned our backs upon Him. We have all spurned our Creator, our Maker. And for that, we merit eternal condemnation. We deserve to be left to our own demise. Heading straight for to destruction, we deserve to plunge into hell. But God pursues. His grace compels Him to come so close to us that He sends His own Son, Jesus Christ, to live a perfect life, to pay the punishment we deserve, to be our substitute so that the offer of salvation is extended to all. That if we repent and place our faith in the Son of God, we would be welcomed into His family as if we had lived Jesus' life and as Jesus had lived our sinful life. God has given us the joy and privilege to not only receive this message, but to make our lives about it, to declare it with our lips, with our lives. 
Don't miss this gracious gift. Don't overlook what God is saying, even while He is correcting and admonishing Jonah. God is a God of compassion, that He does take pity on helpless souls. And He is so adamant about this end, this mission. He is willing and capable of using a stubborn prophet with his unimpressive eight-word message to turn the tides and bring a whole city to repentance. And beloved, the same is true today. God is so adamant about seeing vile sinners saved and people won over to Christ. He is more than willing to send you and me and more than capable of using us. He is not handicapped by your shortcomings, but by His grace, He is breaking and forming your heart to be like His. One that pities and pursues people for Christ. In His sovereignty, God appoints the storm, the fish, the worm, the plant, because he knew these were necessary steps to prepare Jonah for a question. For a question. Ultimately, it was not the storm fish, Ninevites, or plant that finally got through to Jonah. And Jonah was undone by a question. Church, are you? The resilient and radiating hero of the book of Jonah is God. And Jonah wants to leave our attention fixated upon him. As the story ends, Jonah fades into the background, and God comes to the forefront with his ringing question in verses 10 and 11. It's as if Jonah exits off stage and we are left as the audience in the presence of God. We're left with God's question to us, and he waits to hear your answer, to hear your response with your lips and with your life. Let's pray. God, the question that should be bubbling forth from us is not, do you do well to be angry, but do you do well to be gracious? Is it fitting for you to be compassionate to such lowly, hostile rebels like us? And Lord, it leaves us speechless. It leaves us in awe of the grace that we have been shown. And this awe should drive us to be people who do speak, who do declare that every word would be tinged with grace, that we would be distinguished and set apart because what Christ has done and accomplished for us has transformed who we are. Our identity is sure in your Son. And because of that, we are freed and liberated to share the good news of Christ, longing for others to come to know the wonderful richness of the gospel, to declare and live for your grace. Continue to challenge and stretch us. Help us, Lord, to put into practice the things we have learned from your word. And we entrust ourselves to you, knowing that you are faithful to your promises to not only use us, but to mold us to become more like you. We thank you for this time. We pray it's for our good and for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.